Stuart Briscoe, in his commentary on the Minor Prophets, he tells the story of an 11-year-old golfer who's tall, blonde, who was so good at the sport for his age that he was able to compete with 16 and 17-year-olds and beat most of them. This young fellow had a superb swing, uh, the style and the poise of an adult pro, and he could hit the ball a mile, figuratively speaking, of course. One day he had a bad shot, and he was so upset that he took his golf club and he just flung it as hard as he could. His dad, who happened to be playing golf with him on this particular occasion, walked into the weeds and picked up his golf club, came back to where he was, handed it to him, and said, Son, the next time you do that will be the last time you play golf. That boy was Jack Nicklaus. And he took the lesson from his father to heart. Those of us who appreciate golf and the golfing skills and accomplishments of Jack Nicklaus are probably glad that Jack's father extended grace to him and didn't end his golf career at the age of 11. But we're also glad that he didn't just say, now son, naughty, naughty, you must not and should not do things like that. We're glad that he did not do that. You see, there was a tenderness, but also a toughness to his father's love. Our Heavenly Father's love is like that. There is a tenderness and a toughness to his character. He is loving and gracious, but he is also holy and just. Now, as we've already seen, the book of Jonah teaches us about the grace and the love of God. On the other hand, the book of Nahum and Zephaniah teach us about the holiness and the justice of God. So I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles uh, to the book of Nahum. And uh, if you don't know where that is, it's right before the book of Habakkuk. And you're thinking, Habba what? Habakkuk. Happiness is sitting next to someone who knows where Nahum is or where Habakkuk is. Now for those of you who like things to be in orderly fashion, we're really going to mess you up this weekend because we're skipping over Micah which is next in line to be looked at in our walk through the Old Testament. And uh, you say, pray tell, good pastor, why forth dost thou do this? <laughs> because I feel like it is why. <laughs> Actually, it's because historically, Nahum and Zephaniah tell the rest of the story of what happens to the people of Nineveh. And also because more than any of the other minor prophets, these two books deal very specifically with the holiness and the justice of God, which is an important element of the character of God we need to look at after we've looked at Jonah and the love and grace of God. So before we get into it, would you stand with me again and let's just devote this time to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word, and Lord, we thank you uh, for who you are. A reminder this morning that you are not only a God who is loving and gracious, but a God who is holy and just. Teach us what that means today, um, and Lord, um, focus our minds, remove distractions, and then Lord, soften our hearts that we might respond in the way you would have us to. For I pray it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So let me give you kind of a brief historical overview of Jonah, Nahum, and Zephaniah and how they all tie together. You will recall that the city of Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, which was the superpower of the day. It was a power in place and had been in place for well over 300 years. It, uh, Nineveh was a magnificent city, uh, really made up of four city, cities together covering an area of about 60 miles in circumference. Her walls were 10 stories high. She was fortified with 1,500 
towers, all of which were 20 stories high. It was a stunning ancient city to look at. And yet the people of this great city were living in such evil and immoral lives that God just couldn't stand it anymore. His judgment was about to be unleashed on them. And yet we know from our study last time that God is gracious, that God is compassionate. He wants to give them the opportunity to repent and to turn to God. And so he says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and warn them of the coming judgment. And Jonah says, I don't think so. He skips town, takes a cruise ship to Tarshish, and he does so because as far as he's concerned, the Ninevites deserve hell, not the grace of God. And yet God challenges Jonah to see things his way. And so after a few hair-raising, marine-like experiences, Jonah goes to Nineveh quite willingly, and he shares God's love and grace with them. And around 760 B.C., and you may want to note some of these dates just to see the flow of things, around 760 B.C., the entire city of Nineveh repents and turns to God and are spared the judgment of God. That, in a nutshell, is the story of Jonah. So let me ask you, have you ever wonder, wondered what happened to the people of Nineveh after Jonah? Well, let me tell you the rest of the story. Some years later, the Ninevites, they begin to drift from God, and they slowly begin to revert back to their immoral ways. They fail to pass on their newfound faith in the living God to their children. And please note that. They fail to pass it on. And so a hundred or so years later, both Nahum and Zephaniah describe Nineveh as a city that is even more corrupt than in the days of Jonah. In fact, less than 40 years after they repented of their wicked ways, Assyria is back on the war path, and in 722 B.C., they invade and conquer the northern kingdom of Israel, the capital of which is Samaria, treating them with extreme brutality and deporting most of the survivors back to Assyria as slaves. And following this, the Assyrians set their sights on the southern kingdom of Israel, and in time, they begin to attack the fortified cities of Judah, conquering them and taking more than 200,000 prisoners back to Assyria. Judah suffers bitterly under the Assyrian king Sennacherib, who blasphemes and challenges the living God. He ruthlessly taxes them and creates fear not only among them but the whole region. And so with the passing of time hope begins to diminish among the people of Judah specifically now the people who are in Jerusalem and questions begin to arise. Has God abandoned us? Where is God's justice? Why isn't he doing something? Have you ever felt that way? Well, if you are or if you have, you need to hear the message that God gave to Nahum to give to the people of Judah. For you see, it was during this time, this time of growing despair, that God tapped Nahum on the shoulder and tells him to go to the southern kingdom of Judah and tell them that God has not forgotten about them. In chapter 1, Nahum reminds them of the character of our God. And he essentially says, you may think that the Assyrians are getting away with their crimes of evil and brutality. You may think that the forces of evil are winning the battle. But don't ever think that way. Our God is in control. Our God is all-powerful. Our God is a God of justice, and he is committed to punishing wrong and rewarding right. 
Nahum encourages them to keep their eyes on the Lord and to keep on keeping on, knowing that in God's own time and in God's own way, justice will come. In chapter 1, verse 14, Naaman says, The day is coming when the Assyrians will be utterly destroyed. This is what it says. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the carved images and cast idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. Now some years after Nahum, the prophet Zephaniah reinforced Nahum's prophecy that God's judgment was coming to Nineveh. If you turn to Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 13, he prophesies this. He will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate and dry as the desert. And that is exactly what happened. And, and, and it's substantiated not only in the Bible, but other historical records as well. The Babylonians and the Medes form a confederacy and lay siege on Nineveh. However, Nineveh is such a mighty fortress, as I just described a moment ago, that after a couple of years, the Babylonians are still having no success penetrating the walls of that great city. So confident are the Ninevites that their enemies will not be able to breach their walls that on a regular basis they throw a party. They have regular orgies. Well, it's during one of these orgies that the Tigris River on which Nineveh is built rises to flood level and effectively destroys and compromises critical parts of the ancient walls, allowing the Medes and the Babylonians to enter and to open the gates of the city. And as Nahum prophesied, because of the orgies that were going on, only some of the women were sober enough to defend the city. And so the great city of Nineveh is utterly destroyed and left a total wasteland in 612 B.C. It is such a wasteland that up until the 19th century, skeptics believed that references to Nineveh in the Bible were mythical because there was no evidence that this city ever existed. But all that changed in 1845 when archaeologists unearthed the remains of Nineveh and affirmed it to be one of the most magnificent and wealthy cities of the ancient world. Now even though Zephaniah affirmed that Nineveh would soon face the judgment of God, God called Zephaniah to direct the, 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 the majority of his prophecies to the southern kingdom of Judah. You see, as much as the people of Judah rejoiced to hear Nahum declare that the people of Nineveh would soon be judged by God, they were oblivious to their own idolatry and rebellion against God. They had drifted from God and really weren't even fully aware of how much they had drifted from him. And so he sends his prophet Zephaniah to give them the following prophecy, which you'll find in Zephaniah chapter 1, beginning with verse 4. God says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place every remnant of Baal, the names of the pagan and the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry hosts, those who bow down and swear by Moloch, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Now in today's vernacular, God is essentially saying here, you have reduced me to a vending machine. 
In fact, you have reduced me to one of several vending machines. You come to me only because of what you want from me. You revere me and you go through the rituals of worshiping me on a weekly basis, not because you love and adore me, but so that I will give you the good life that you really want. And just to cover all of your basis, you worship Baal, and you worship Moloch, and you even worship the stars and the zodiac, hoping that they will give you what you're after if I don't come through with what you want. And God is repulsed by their blatant idolatry. And he calls on them to repent or to face judgment. Well, the people of Judah, they hear what Zephaniah has to say, but they don't take it to heart. They continue to live as they have. And in 586 B.C., Zephaniah's warning becomes a reality. When God allows the Babylonians, who just previously had destroyed Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire, he allows the Babylonian Empire now to destroy Judah and its capital, Jerusalem. So there you have it a brief historical background and an overview of the key prophecies and events that we find in the book of Nahum and the book of Zephaniah. Which brings me to an intriguing question which I want to devote some time to uh, in the time remaining. A question that's raised by Dr. Larry Crabb in his book entitled 66 Love Letters. It's really a question that a number of people grapple with today. Crabb writes this. He says, Lord, you didn't like it at all when Jonah wanted to see Nineveh destroyed. You wanted him to be gracious toward the Ninevites. But now, a hundred years later, through Nahum and Zephaniah, you announce your plan to destroy Nineveh and that this should be cause for your people to celebrate. What's with that, God? Crab is essentially asking, God, what gives you the right to judge? What gives you the right to order the destruction of a person or a city like the Ninevites? It's a good question. It deserves an answer. And Nahum and Zephaniah, they answer that question in part by referring to the character of our God. But I also want to thank Norman Geisler, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Max Licato, John Ortberg for their insights on this particular subject. First of all, God has the right to judge because he is the all-powerful, sovereign creator. In Genesis 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. In Genesis 1:27, it says, "So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them." In chapter 1, verse 3, the prophet Nahum says, "The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. God is the creator of life, and as the creator, he has the right to take life. Norman Geisler says, so many times people assume that what is wrong for us is also wrong for God. Not so. We didn't create life, and so it is morally wrong for us to take life. On the other hand, it is not evil or morally wrong for God to take life because he's the author of life. In fact, we tend to forget that God takes the life of every human being. It's called death. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that to face judgment. Our time of death, this verse tells us, has been appointed by God. It has been ordained 
by him. Which reminds me of the wisdom that an old-timer shared once when he said, be careful not to take life too seriously because no one gets out alive anyways. And so when God takes a life, or even how God takes a life, is not a moral issue because it is fully in his right to do so. He is the all-powerful, sovereign Lord and Creator. Furthermore, God has the right to judge because He is holy and just. Psalm 99 verse 9 says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. When we say that God is holy, we mean His character is perfect in every way. He is totally pure. He is the absolute standard of ethical and moral purity. The implications is that God abhors sin and evil. He cannot tolerate unrighteousness. God called Jonah to preach against Nineveh because its wickedness, this is what the scripture says, its wickedness has come up before me. In other words, their wickedness had grown to the point where God said, I can't stand it anymore. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. And therefore what that means is that God's holiness demands consequences for sin. When we break his standard of holiness, and all of us do, his holiness demands that he judge that sin, not ignore it or excuse it. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and his wife Sapphira lied to the people of the early church and to God, pretending that they were more generous than they actually were in reality. And God judged them both for their blatant hypocrisy their dishonesty with instant death. John Erberg says, we are shocked by such events because in carrying out his justice, God seems to lack self-control. We have the image of a person who has a bad temper or is undisciplined. And yet this is not who our God is. He is never out of control. He does, is not, he's not cruel, he's, he's not vindictive, nor does he experience unpredictable rage. His justice is never retaliatory. See, to retaliate means you're, you're, you're really just getting even. God doesn't retaliate. He has no need to get even. He's God. His justice is never unfair. God's justice is always an expression of his holy character. God's justice says that if you will disobey me, then you will suffer the consequences. His justice says when a wrong has been committed, it must be paid for. Now sometimes, God enacts his justice immediately, as he did in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. And he is fully in his right to do so. All of us are alive, you've heard me say this many times, all of us are alive today only because of the grace of God. If he was to enact his justice, we'd all be gone. At other times, for reasons only God knows, he chooses to extend grace instead of justice. But even when he extends grace, his justice demands that someone pay for the wrongs that had been committed. In fact, it was for this very reason that Jesus went to the cross and the reason that we celebrate communion like we will at the end of this message. In order for God to extend his grace and his mercy to us, someone had to pay for all the sins of the world and Jesus willingly did that because of his love for us. But make no mistake, God's not obligated in any way to extend mercy or grace to us. For example, if I were to borrow your snowblower, 
um, tomorrow. I know, I know, who would have thought I would have to borrow a snowblower in the second uh, week of spring. But uh, anyways, if I were to borrow your snowblower tomorrow and I wreck it, justice says I have to repair it or I have to pay you to repair it. That is justice, getting what I deserve. In no way are you obligated to extend grace to me and give me what I don't deserve, which is paying for the repair yourself. Now, that would be really nice if you did that. But you see, you're not obligated to do so. And so it is with God. He may extend mercy to us, but he is not obligated. Now, we know that God is patient. Nahum 1.3 says the Lord is slow to anger. However, in Romans 1.18, the, the Apostle Paul says there comes a time when the wickedness of man grows so perverse and so depraved that God finally says enough. And he pours out his judgment. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, for example, the people in Noah's day were so wicked the scriptures tell us that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts, every inclination, were only evil all of the time. And as a result, God poured out his judgment on them through the flood. Here in Nahum and Zephaniah, we read the wickedness of Nineveh is utterly and totally depraved. They openly defy the living God and worship gods made in their own image. They are into cultic prostitution and child sacrifice. They are extremely violent and brutal. When they capture a city, they are merciless. They cut off people's limbs. They decorate their palaces with the heads of their victims. They hold babies by the ankles and swing them like clubs and smash them against stone walls. And folks, when vile behavior like this continues year after year after year, pretty soon it becomes the new normal. Pretty soon God's given conscience in people begins to callous over to the place where people are insensitive to what they're doing, insensitive to the brutality of their lives and to justifiable guilt and deep sorrow. The worst of brutality is seen as normal and justifiable behavior, just another normal day at the office, as it were. When you've murdered thousands of children, what's one more? When you have sacrificed one child after another to some pagan god, generation after generation, what's one more? When others have turned over their young daughters to serve as temple prostitutes, with the passing of time, it's normal, it's expected that you turn your daughter over too. Now we hear this and, and we wonder, how could this have happened? This is insanity. This is demonic. And you're right, of course. And yet, if we are repulsed at the thought of this happening can you imagine how much more our holy God is repulsed? Can you see why God finally says, enough already? I can't stand it anymore. R.C. Sproul says, God's grace is not infinite. God is infinite and God is gracious, but grace is not infinite. God sets limits to his patience. He warns us over and over again that someday the axe will fall and his judgment will be poured out. So hear me clearly. God cannot be a God of love without also being a God of justice. I mean, think of it this way. If you were to see a five-year-old child being 
beaten to a pulp while this child's father was sitting on a bench nearby with a smile on his face and the father did absolutely nothing. Would you call that love? No, love compels a father to get angry at the injustice and to stop it. God's love is no different. I mean, if God just sat on his throne like a doting old grandfather and just winked at sin and at injustice, if he didn't promise to deal justly in his time and in his way with the terrorist who killed our friend, if he didn't promise to deal justly with the rapist who attacked our daughter, if he didn't promise to deal justly with the person who assassinated the character of our son, in short, if he didn't promise to deal justly with all forms of sin, who would consider God to be a God of love? Now people say to me, well, why doesn't God stop the drunk driver? Why doesn't God stop the murderer or the rapist before they hurt someone? Well, sometimes he does, folks, and only eternity will reveal how many of us have been spared hardship and suffering, and we don't even know it. But of course, we know that sometimes he doesn't. And it would be presumptuous of me to assume that I know why. But I believe that one reason he doesn't always intervene is because he's committed to honoring our freedom to make choices. You see, when we ask God to step into history and to stop people from making evil choices, we need to realize that we are asking him to take away our freedom of choice. We are asking him essentially to turn all of us into robots and to program us always to make right choices. And I trust that you see the implications of that. Unless we're prepared to give up our freedom to make choices, we need to accept the fact that we live in a broken world, a world that God never intended in the beginning, but a world where people will sin, where people will make evil and short-sighted decisions that will not only hurt themselves at times, but will also hurt other people. If we want God to rid the world of all that is evil and all that is bad, then we need to realize it's going to require that he take us all out. Because each of us is capable of making sinful choices each and every day that add to the pain and the hurt in our world in some way. But even when his actions or lack thereof don't make any sense to us, even when we don't understand why he doesn't act right, right now, given a certain situation, the Bible calls on us to trust him, to believe he knows what he's doing, and that he is working all things together. <coughs> Romans 8, 28, he's working all things together for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory, and that he will deal justly with every injustice, perhaps not according to our timeline, but in his time, and in his way. In fact, Nahum chapter 1 verse 2 says that the Lord is jealous and he's an avenging God, which means he is zealous to uphold a righteous standard and that he avenges wrong. He establishes governments to punish the evildoers and to protect her people from aggressors. And whatever wrongs are ignored or overlooked by those in authority, if those in authority are corrupt themselves, or if they overlook certain injustices. Romans 12, verse 19, 
God promises that one day he will ensure that justice occurs. He says, vengeance is mine. We can trust him in this. His very nature demands it. However, let me quickly add that while God is holy and just, he is also gracious and loving. While God does eventually pour out his judgment on wickedness, he will bend over backwards to make a way of escape to those who want it. In the days of Noah, which I referred to earlier, God pleads with the people of that day for over 120 years. Through the preaching of Noah, pleading with the people of that day to accept and receive the grace of God. And no one takes God's offer of grace. In Genesis 18, Abraham bargains with God over the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, Lord, if there are 50 righteous people in these cities, will you destroy them? And God says, no, I will spare the city for their sake. And Abraham continues to bargain. He says, well, what about 40? What about 30? What about 20? Will you destroy the city if there's only 10 righteous people? And God answers, no. For the sake of those 10, I will not destroy it. We see the same compassion extended to the city of Nineveh in the book of Jonah. Folks, this is the heart of our God. If anyone wants to escape his wrath and his judgment, he will provide a way. And he did provide a way through Jesus Christ. Our God is holy and just, but all of his actions are motivated from a heart of love. Whether we see it or not, whether it feels like it or not, God has our best interests at heart in all things. It is not God's will or desire to punish anyone. His will, his mission, his passion is to bring all people back in right relationship with himself. And in the words of Joshua, to hear every person say with conviction, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now in a few moments we're going to gather around the Lord's table. And in preparation for that, I want to remind us of, of how Jesus' death and resurrection changes everything for those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You know, I often talk with people who tell me how much they're struggling um, developing a close, intimate relationship with God. And part of the reason they're struggling so much is because they believe that God's love for them is, is really conditioned on, on, on their behavior. They believe that God pats them on the back when they do good and that God boots them in the doghouse when they do bad. And actually when you read through the Old Testament and particularly the minor prophets, you know, at first blush, you know, it's easy to conclude that. And so because they keep failing to meet God's standard. They never experience the joy or the peace of knowing God because who wants to be close to someone that you can never please? Do you know someone that you can never please? Sitting right next to you, isn't she? <laughs> Shouldn't have said that. Isn't he? There we go. But you know, who wants to be close to someone that you can never please? And you see, this is the way it is for those who are without Christ. They're trying to do it on their own through the practice of religion. 
And they're kind of all, you know, all the time they're kind of going, have I done enough yet, God? You know, everything cool with you and me? You know, have I done it all right? You see, this is the way that it was for us before Christ came on the scene. But you see, all of that changes when you understand and embrace what Jesus accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection. I want you to turn over to Romans 5 for just a moment. Romans 5. This is what it says there, verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Now here is my paraphrase of what Paul is saying in those verses, and I want you to listen carefully for your encouragement. What Paul is saying here is this. Look, at one time you were an enemy of God. You were spiritually separated from God. You were a sinner living in rebellion to God, and you were the object, therefore, of his wrath and judgment. And as a result, God's wrath and judgment was directed at you even as it was directed at the people of Nineveh. But God demonstrates his love for you in this. While you were still a sinner, while you were still in rebellion against him, while you were still his enemy, his love for you was so great that he sent his son to die for you. He sent his son Jesus to take God's wrath that was directed to you and your sin, and Jesus took it upon himself. And so when you embraced Jesus as your Savior and Lord, when you accepted his grace and forgiveness and were justified by his blood, the conflict between you and God ended. You are no longer God's enemy, but you are now his spiritual son and daughter. You are no longer the object of his judgment and his wrath. No, you are now the object of his love and grace. When you placed your faith in him, your sins were transferred to Jesus' account. And his perfect righteousness was transferred to your account, which means that you are now in Jesus Christ. And therefore, you are forgiven, you are righteous, you are acceptable in the eyes of God, not because of what you've accomplished, but because of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross. You now belong to his forever family. And he deals with you now as a father would, not as a judge would. Oh, make no mistake. In this life, we reap what we sow. Sin has consequences. But God is not angry with you when you struggle with sin. He is patient with you not unlike a loving father who encourages his toddler who has stumbled to get back up and to keep on keeping on. Now folks, if we get this, if we understand this and apply this fundamental truth to our lives, it will change everything from the inside out. Our motivation will change. 
We will no longer relate to our Heavenly Father or serve our Heavenly Father out of fear or out of obligation, but out of a deep love for Him and desire to want to honor Him. In verse 10, Paul essentially says, If God through Christ loved you enough to save you when you were his enemy, how much more will he love you and care for you in this life now that you are his child and his friend? How much more can you be confident that God is using all things, even your hardships, your suffering, not to judge you or to punish you, but to grow you up in him as his child and to accomplish his very best in and through your life, either by pruning you or by disciplining you as any good father does. Hebrews 12 verse 10 says, our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And Romans 8.1, Paul says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are in Christ Jesus. And friends, that is what we celebrate as we come to the Lord's table. As Christ's followers, we can have an unshakable confidence that we are no longer the objects of his wrath and his judgment, but his sons and daughters. And as long as we surrender all to him, he will use everything that happens to us, the good, the bad, and the ugly, to accomplish his good purposes in and through our lives. Folks, if you can say amen to that, then come to the table boldly with praise and thanksgiving in your heart. On the other hand, if you can't, if you're not in relationship with Jesus, if you're still trusting in your own efforts to make you presentable to God, and you're frustrated, and you know why you're frustrated now, and you know you need Jesus in your life, then friend, Take a moment right now. Bow your head before him. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to invade your life and to make you his forever child through faith in him and by his grace. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes. 1 Corinthians 11, we read this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, we just praise you today not only for your love and grace, but also for your holiness and justice. We thank you that we can approach your throne, that we can approach your table today boldly, not because of what we have done, but because of what your Son, Jesus Christ, has done for us on the cross. And Lord Jesus, our hearts are overflowing with gratitude for you because you took God's judgment you took God's wrath upon yourself that was directed to us. Because you died in our place, we are no longer the enemy of God, but we are his spiritual children. We are his friends. Because you died in our place, he no longer relates to us as a judge, but as a father. And 
Lord, that has changed everything. I pray even now for those who are reaching out to you in faith and embracing you right now as their Savior and their Lord. I just pray, Lord, that you would bless them and guide them going forward, that you would keep them humble, that they would reach out to others who will be able to help them and encourage them in the way. And thank you, Lord, for the times that you, you prune us, the times you discipline us, and allow us to face hardships and storms. For as we look back, we now see that it was when we were going through the valley that you became real in our lives. It was when we went through the valley that our prayers were from the heart and we were really honest with you. And out of those ashes, Lord, you taught us what really matters in life. And you revealed your love and grace to us in ways that we've never experienced before. Lord, we don't want anything to come between us. And so we confess our sins, our failures to you right now. We ask that you would renew us by your Holy Spirit. That we may love you and magnify your holy name. Bless and sanctify with your word and spirit these gifts of bread and the fruit of the vine. That we receiving them, Lord, may be partakers of the divine nature. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who taught us when we pray to say, Our Father art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. But deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.